this other idea of simplicity. It's like simplicity actually has actual documented like business outcomes. But we know in the real world, you know, we're not always great at simplifying things because we have to be an editor when you're a business owner, which is really, really hard because I don't know about you, but me, like I was always like the nerdy kid growing up. So it's like a book report. I try to say, I read this whole book. You have to know everything. (laughs) I got to tell you everything on the sales page, everything in the email, everything on the thing. That's how I used to be. And still still trying to filter. Right. Yes. Yeah. And so I think that's always, you know, everyone's instinct because you're like, you're so in the business and you know every single thing. And you that that's what, how I was when I was a little kid because I was like a nerdy little kid, you know, I was like reading the books and I want, I want everybody to see how smart I am. But then I have to go through this process of saying like, well, no, I mean, they're only going to pay attention to, let's say like three things. Okay. Or they're only going to remember one thing. Welcome to the Juicy CEO Podcast. Listen. It's time to give you some hard truths, so sit up and pay attention. If you don't know how to stand out online today, you have already lost. In order to create credibility, influence, and real staying power, you have to build a personal brand with some juice. So join me, personal brand strategist, coach, and breast cancer survivor, Monique Bryan, each Wednesday morning as I teach you all the tips and tricks I use to build my six-figure brand while in remission. It's time for you to get to that juicy CEO status by learning from some badass women in business who've been where you are, showing you that juicy CEOs are made, not born. So sit back, relax, and let's get ready to get into the juice. Hello, my lovelies. You are in for a special treat because I have been dying to interview our next powerhouse guest. I discovered this woman on Medium through one of her articles that she wrote. Then I tracked down her podcast. Then I tracked down her YouTube. I bought her book and I fell in love with her newsletter. Everything she was putting out was just so juicy because she deals in one of those subjects that I am just fascinated by, and that is consumer behavior. Like when I became a marketer, I became obsessed with why people do what they do. Why do some take actions? Why don't others? Why are some loyal to some brands and not to other brands? What can we do as small business owners to tap into that? So finding Jennifer's content was a wish come true. So allow me to introduce Jennifer Kleinhans to the Juicy CEO stage. She is a recognized authority in applied behavioral science. Jennifer is the founder and managing director of applied behavioral science consultancy, Choice Hacking. There she helps global businesses ethically apply behavioral science and psychology principles to their marketing and product experiences. You can find her on her popular podcast, Choice Hacking. You will love it easy, digestible principles on all major streaming platforms or check her out on her YouTube channel, Grow Like the Greatest, where she profiles big companies and breaks down the behavioral science secrets behind their success. Her book, Choice Hacking, which I love, How to Use Behavioral Science and Psychology to Create an Experience that Sings, was recently named one of the best behavioral psychology books of all time by Book Authority. So welcome, Jennifer. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, I'm so happy to have you. And I just want to start off by saying this was a question I had for her off before we started recording. So she lives in the UK, but she had does not have a British accent. And I want her to just tell everybody why that is, because I was just like, what's going on? Yeah, I know. I confuse a lot of people. So I am originally from the US. I moved to Australia for a job with an advertising agency and I met the man who is now my fiance, who is British. 
And so that's how we ended up in the UK from Australia. It's a little bit of a strange story, but here we are. I love that. And you have a very interesting story on how you left corporate to come and do what you do now. So before we drive into all of the juicy bits about what you're going to share, I love to tell the audience like where people started, right? So I would love if you could share a little bit about your story and your journey. Yeah, absolutely. So you're right. I've, I I mean, relatively recently left sort of like the corporate world for entrepreneurship and running my consulting firm, Choice Hacking. And actually, this is the second, this is the second big career shift I've made in my life. So actually, my very first career, I was a classical violist. So I was in orchestras and like touring around. I was teaching. I was being a little bit of an entrepreneur, I guess, within the music industry myself. So obviously playing, but then I started something. It was basically like a booking company. So I would be the intermediary between somebody who needs musicians and the musicians. And I sort of discovered this love of business. And I was like, oh, this is really interesting. I really like this. Sometimes a little rough to be going through that audition process all the time. I think I imagine what it must be like to be an actor. It's kind of the same thing. There's things out of your control and you're just sort of subject to the whims of a lot of people. You're under someone else's microscope. Yeah, exactly. And they're like, oh, no, you know, you're this, you're too that, you're whatever. And I, I just didn't really like that. I wanted something to kind of be, you know, under my control. And entrepreneurship is the way I did that. So I went back to school. I went through advertising school, eventually got an MBA. And long story short, I started working at AT AT&T. I did product innovation. I did customer experience, digital marketing, and eventually found my way agency side, found my way first to Australia and then to the UK. And the whole time I was sort of, I guess you'd call it client side or corporate side, I was always really interested in using what I was calling behavioral economics at that time. And you know, I, I guess I'd been introduced to it like everybody sort of is, like through Freakonomics and sort of, you know, like mm. pop, pop behavioral economics. But I started to get into it. And as I went through my MBA program, I was doing like self-studying, but then I was also learning about, you know, consumer psychology and, you know, behavioral economics there. Now I, I sort of use the phrase behavioral science because to me, it, it's kind of an umbrella term, right? It, you could have like psychology, you could have behavioral economics, you have a lot of things under that umbrella, but it's exactly what you said. It's the study of how people think, how they make decisions, how they process information. And you know this, and I know this, like marketing is all about those topics, right? And I think for me, because I came from a creative background, I came into advertising and sort of the corporate side. And I would see like these two camps of people. There would be like the creative people and there would be like the non-creative people, like the sciencey numbers people. And they were like two... Like, I don't know, two opposing forces in a way. Two completely different camps. And they didn't really understand each other. But I have been somebody who came from a blend of creativity and business. And so I really found a niche kind of sitting between those two groups. So using science to help creativity be stronger and more effective and helping creativity and creative thinking make sort of the, the dry kind of numbers and science side of things kind of come alive in an interesting way. And so that's how, you know, choice hacking sort of came about. I started using behavioral science, you know, over the past, oh God, it's been, you know, more than 10 years now, (laughs) just time flies. And the more I used it with clients, you know, people really got excited by it. But I found myself being, again, that bridge between this time, the creatives, the, the sort of numbers people in businesses and academics. So I, I wouldn't call myself a behavioral scientist. Like I'm not going out and doing like research projects and things. But what I am doing is interpreting research that happens more or less in a laboratory environment and then saying like, all right, well, how does that work in the real world? And let's experiment with that. Let's figure out how it works. And it's not necessarily like a straight line. It takes some time to figure out like, 
you know, what's going to work. And that's where the creativity part comes in as well. It's like, well, you know, the creatives have to come in and help us understand, like, how do we frame these things? How do you make them more exciting? How do you make them, you know, catch people's eyes? But then with the underlying, you know, behavioral science and psychology, which grounds us in things that are proven or at least evidence-based. I love that. It's, I'm just thinking, when you were talking, I was just thinking about your YouTube channel and how you make (laughs) things so interesting and engaging. And you do take these relatively maybe complex principles and make them fun and digestible for people to understand. So bringing like, I totally see that bringing the science and the creativity together because I'm like, I, I'm not going to say I'm anti-science. I'm more like my brain just doesn't want to absorb dry material, but I am obsessed with like, how do the people know why the people do what they do? So I love that there is somebody like you who does that. And you sound like you've been entrepreneurial your whole life and it was just taking a while for you to tap into it. And now that you have, we're all very grateful. So you went on and you started your company called Choice Hacking and Choice stands for something, right? It does. <laughs> tell, it does. Tell the people. Yeah. So I use a model called Choice, which, you know, I created and then obviously like, you know, it's good because it kind of matches the book and everything. But basically choice, it's an acronym. It stands for clear, holistic. I always have to go through because I always lose track of where I am. Clear, holistic, open, <laughs> individual, contextual, and emotional. And those are all the things that in my experience, you know, in actually applying these things in the real world, that is what makes a really compelling customer experience. So if you look at a, you know, a company like Disney, so Disney does all of those things. They fire on each one of those elements really well. Do they fire on all five of those elements like as as well as they could be? No, but nobody does really. And, you know, it's it's not that every brand has to be doing every single thing the best in, you know, in the industry, but they have to pick the two or three things that they're going to excel at. Like Disney, I would say, excels in emotion, right? So, you know, this is something like they create magic. It's a great experience, but they don't forget about the other four components of this, you know, good customer experience. It's still individual as in personalized. It's still really clear, easy process to go through. Things like booking online, product called Magic Band, which makes everything sort of seamless in Disney World, for example. So this is mm. the thing that I found is all of these companies seem to share these five elements. And then they they tend to pick, well, you know, like two or three that they really excel on. And that's what differentiates them. But they don't forget about all five. And I'm going to encourage everybody to go and just go and get the book so you know what all the five are because she breaks all of it down for you, which I've been like listening on audio and reading at the same time. So I'm just nerding out on all of the things. When I first heard choice hacking and you had talked about this in one of your podcast episodes, just the concept of choice, I thought was just really interesting. And probably because I was in the middle of writing a sales page and I'm sitting here being like, you could pay this or you could pay that or you could pay this. And I was like, people want more options, right? And then I heard your podcast and that's not actually the case. So what what the hell is going on with people? What do they want? Uh, Yeah, well, this is the question. That's the question of the age. Okay, never mind. (laughs) I mean, okay, we'll stick it to choice specifically. Yeah. Well, you know, I think there, there's something in this idea of choice. It's it's called the choice paradox, right? So I didn't invent this, like the very, very smart people. Barry Schwartz is a professor who invented this idea of the choice paradox, which basically says people need enough choice, but too much choice will turn people off. It'll make them anxious. So I think about like college admissions, for example, if you apply to 25 schools, and 25 schools accept you and you have to pick between 25, all of a sudden that becomes really, really stressful because there's so many options and I'm going to have to give up something to go someplace else. And it's like, oh my God, how do I do this? 
But if you get accepted into two schools, well, suddenly that's a much easier decision. Those could still be, you know, great schools. These are, you know, it's a place you're going to spend for four years, but it's that idea that like, it's, it's almost like a little bit of a curve, right? So it goes up and that's good, 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 good. And then it hits a point where it's just too many choices, too many options, and it starts to go down. And then I get anxious and I'm upset about it. And it's like, oh, a lot of times people just get analysis paralysis and they won't make a decision at all. So I think, you know, this idea of choice and options is really important, especially for business. So if you think about, uh, let's say like a brand like Ikea. So Ikea, when you think about mm. choice, you're like, oh, I don't know. I go into Ikea. There's a lot of choice. There's a lot of different products. And that is true. But if you look at, let's say, a dresser, they tend to offer a piece of furniture in generally three, I mean, sometimes more, but they will always take the three boxes of black, white, and oak are usually Mm -hmm. those three that they'll do. Some products have a little bit more. Some products always have three. But the reason that they do that is because it's simple. It's easier to make a decision because you have to kind of compare across a lot of things. First of all, they've got you trapped in an Ikea. So the chances you're going to leave without a dresser are very low because... It's sunk cost and I've been here for a long time. I'm getting hungry and I've been walking for hours and I'm arguing with my spouse. I don't know what's going on. But once they kind of get you focused down on the product itself, it's like, oh, okay, well, that's an easy decision. It's, you know, well, what goes like what goes with our other Mm. other furniture? Like it's not this huge complex thing. Okay, well, now I've got this dresser and it comes in eight sizes and it comes in 35 colors. So how do I pick between all of these things? And then you get anxious and you go, you know what? I don't need a dresser. Like, let's just get out of here. I'm done with Ikea. So a good example, I mean, Apple is probably the other example. They're sort of straying, I think, a little bit from their simplicity of choice, which was inevitable because they have more products. But you remember even like 10 years ago, I mean, you would go in and they'd have a phone and that would be like the choice. And then they started to add like another size phone. And now it's sort of going more and more and more. But they were always for many, many years, like very simple in how they presented a choice. And it was like, if you want a phone, this is what you get. If you want a laptop, this is what you get. If you want, well, way back to the iPod, <laughs> this is what you get. You get the Nano. The iPod. <laughs> yeah, you get the click <laughs> click wheel or you get the screen. And those are like your three choices. But yeah, I think Apple's still a really good example of, you know, they get you into a store even and there's not a million choices, not a million products out on the table because they want to really focus you in on, hey, play with this product, figure out if you like it and don't spend like weeks, days, especially when you're somebody who maybe isn't as comfortable with software, computers, things like that. Don't spend weeks trying to figure out all these different like peripherals and stuff. And like, I am old enough to remember when, you know, you would order like a Windows computer and you'd have to tick the, how much RAM do I want? How much of this do I want? How much of that do I want? Like, and stuff, you you didn't even really know what it was because this is like, not the early, early days, but like the relatively early days of personal computing. And people would just go like, ah, forget it. Computers are too complicated for me. And then you had Apple show up and have, you know, a system that basically looks nice and it's easy to sort of work with and don't have a million products to choose between. So it became the preferred choice for a lot of people because it was just easy. It was simple. And the choices were there, but the choices were, let's say, minimized. Yeah. And as you're saying that, that's literally why I have stayed an Apple customer, like specifically for that. I kept, I had an Apple phone. I had a different phone. When I went to Apple, I just was wondering, why, why do I love it so much where I can streamline my computer and my phone? And now we got an Apple Watch and an iPad. Everything was super fine, but the screen, all the apps and everything was very, it was simple. Yeah. And then, you know, my brother's like, you got to get a Samsung. Samsung, you can customize. Samsung, you can do this. I had this for a month and I was so frustrated that I was like, I don't understand why I need all of these things when mm-hmm. I just need it sim- simple and easy to find. And I returned the phone and I got my Apple back and I was just like, he's like, but it's not even the best phone. I was like, 
It makes my life so much easier. I don't need to be able to customize the home screen nine million ways. Right. And so I love that you brought up Apple as an example, because that was so me. Like, if we think about how much choice we have in a day, how many decisions we have to make, having less choice and almost like having the professional make the decision for us will make our lives that much easier. Mm -hmm. So I know, like, it seems to me... Like, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but your mission is really to make all of the different principles that the big dogs use, the Googles and the Amazons of the world and have small businesses be able to apply it to what they do. Right. And that's what I really loved about it. Everything that you shared, it was like, okay, well, look how Starbucks is doing it. Look how Peloton's doing it. And then being like, oh, I can totally do these things inside of my, inside of my own company, especially around like curating that customer experience. Hello, my lovelies. I hope you're listening closely because I'm about to come through with the juiciest of announcements. I don't know about you, but I am so sick and tired of Zoom learning and virtual connections. That is why I am so excited to announce that we have just opened applications for 25 badass women in business to join us in Miami in 2022 for the very first ever Momentum Personal Branding and Business Retreat. Yes, you heard me right. We go into Miami. But first, let's get something straight. This is not a rah-rah retreat or a conference. Momentum is a personal brand building experience. It's a three and a half day hands-on training where we get to work. I am partnering with some of the top experts in the game. I'm talking marketing, social media, PR, intellectual property, branding. And over the weekend together, we are going to show you how to position yourself as a captivating industry leader who gets those premium paying clients and aligned speaking opportunities without a huge following or hiring an expensive PR team. Basically, we about to bust your personal brand into the next stratosphere. Plus, you're going to enjoy a luxe venue with Miami vibes, get that decadent swag bag filled with pampering and business goodies, pose for a stack of juicy new lifestyle headshots, and of course, mouthwatering eats and treats that demand to be shown over on the gram. My favorite part is I've created the juiciest personal brand playbook that you're going to be able to fill out on the spot. So when you leave, you are ready to implement with strategy, confidence, and ease. So if you've been waiting for a sign that it's time to level up your presence and unleash your industry expertise, then this is the invitation that you have been waiting for. So here's the thing. We have limited spots available because we want to create this curated experience for every Every single one of you who get into that room. So once the spots are gone, they be gone. So if you know you want to be there, just visit bit.ly forward slash momentum retreat. Now let's get into the episode. So I would love it if you shared, if you got any tips on like what our small business people need to, because I mean, there are things like you said, we may not be able to do all of the things. Not everything may apply at that time, but I do find the way you teach simple enough for everyone to understand. So where would you, where would you have a start? Yeah. I mean, it, I, I like that you made that point, by the way, like I more or less agree. I mean, I think, I think it's sort of my mission with putting together the content and things is, you know, you see a lot of content around behavioral science and psychology or consumer psychology, and it feels like you have to have a PhD to understand it, which is silly because most marketers, I mean, even if you have an advanced degree, like it's not in anything academic, really. Do you know what I mean? It's, that's, that's a terrible way. To, I mean, I have an advanced degree in marketing. 
it can be academic, but it's not like a research study or anything like that. Right. So again, like trying to, you know, be the bridge between those two things. But yeah, it's interesting that you bring up smaller businesses because for me, like a lot of what I do with those, those big case studies, I mean, it's, it's looking at what makes a business successful and kind of unpacking that. And I think that's a, that's a good sort of lesson for anybody. And interestingly, I have like a lot of fitness people that follow me and things too, who go like, Oh yeah, this is really, I can sort of understand like how they're molding the customer experience to make me do or choose, you know, something. So Starbucks is a good example. Like why do I choose a bigger coffee when there's like a psychological trick to picking something smaller? I think there's a lot of people who can use these lessons in a lot of different ways, but I think yes, demystifying sort of the approaches and the six, the, the success that they've had from a psychological perspective is really helpful. And I think. Now, part of what I try to get across in my messaging as well is like, there's a lot of reasons why something becomes successful. Some are within your control and some are without, right? Like Starbucks might be a good example because, you know, they they push the envelope in a lot of ways because we didn't really have a coffee culture, but they weren't the first coffee shop. Like it, the whole story of people aren't familiar is basically Howard Schultz, who eventually became the CEO very famously, was their head of marketing when they were only like five people big. I mean, he was working in New York somewhere and they got him out. And he, they sent him on a business trip to Italy. Then Italy has a very like their, their coffee culture is very much a part of Italian culture. So there's little shops everywhere. And he started to see how people, you know, were having conversations and building relationships. And they had what he called the third place, right? So this not work, not home. It's a place that you can go meet with friends, that kind of thing. And he took that and he expanded upon it. But again, like that, it might have just been the right time. Friends was a huge sitcom at the, at the, moment and they write the coffee shop the coffee shop yeah, so there's like you know and fraser even was like you know in sort of a like a coffee shop and that's where they went and that's where they you know conversed and these were like huge shows and so that probably had something to do with it like it was the right time for the culture in at large you know in the u.s to be more like coffee focused i mean so this is the point is like it's it's hard to say that there's any number of principles that are solely responsible for something's success. There has to be right time, you know, market forces, all that stuff. But I do think looking at what we can control and saying like, you know, they may not have been doing this on purpose, but if you kind of look back through the eyes of a psychologist or a behavioral scientist, this is some of the evidence or these are some of the principles they're using to become successful. And I definitely think those are things, you know, any size business can apply. I mean, I think for me, the, the biggest lessons as I go through this, I mean, they tend to come up again and again, right? It's things about choice, managing choice. It's about simplicity. I think it's also about attention and understanding like how, how does a digital experience work or even like a retail experience? How does advertising work to grab my attention? So that could be anything from like I use visual salience AIs to like, you know, analyze different things, analyze different websites. So this is more of my consulting practice and say like, okay, well, what are people even like drawn to? What are their eyes drawn to? Like, you know, what did instinctively do we pay attention to? If we're walking down the street or flipping through channels or even on YouTube and an ad comes up, what makes us stop and pay attention to that? And then I think, you know, this other idea of simplicity, it's like simplicity actually has actual documented like business outcomes. But we know in the real world, you know, we're not always great at simplifying things because we want to. This is what I call it. Actually, I was, I was talking to somebody else yesterday about this idea of, you know, you have to be an editor when you're a business owner. Which is really, really hard because I don't know about you, but me, like I was always like the nerdy kid growing up. So I, it's like a book report. I try to, I try to say, I read, I read this whole book. You have to know everything. 
I got to tell you everything on the sales page, everything in the email, everything on the thing. That's how I used to be. And still, still trying to filter. Right. Yes. Yeah. And so I think that's always, you know, everyone's instinct because you're like, you're so in the business and you know every single thing. And you, you know, for me, it's like, well, that that's how I was when I was a little kid because I was like a nerdy little kid, you know, I was like reading the books and I want, I want everybody to see how smart I am. But then I have to go through this process of saying like, well, no, I mean, they're only going to pay attention to, let's say like three things. Okay. Or they're only going to remember one thing. And they're only going to remember one thing if I tell them that one thing like five, five times. So I have to, you know, myself and I think a lot of business owners have to understand things like choice and options and how people actually process information. And, you know, again, so that's simplicity. And I think choice we've talked about. But the, the number one thing that was really an eye opener for me is being somebody who's, you know, worked in marketing, you know, small business owners and things do the same stuff. You talk to a customer and they say, Oh, I bought this thing because. And our instinct is to believe them because, you know, they're telling us the truth as far as they, as far as they know. But we know that behavioral science and psychology, there's a lot of things like cognitive bias. So, you know, you get this information coming at you from every direction and our brains had to basically invent like rules of thumb to filter the information coming into our brain. So that could be a good example is anchoring bias. So we're influenced by the first number that we see. So if you go into a job negotiation or you're talking to a client and you really want to get paid $5,000, you might say, oh, you know, well, like if I scope this out, you know, normally I would charge like 7000 for this, but because of X, Y, and Z, this is a $5,000 job. And that's fine. You know, you're not lying to them or anything. You're literally saying like you're throwing out a higher number to anchor them again. So then 5000 feels like a deal. Whereas if you had said, well, I know a lot of my competitors are charging $50 for this, but I'm going to charge you $5,000. You know what I mean? You get anchored mm-hmm. on the opposite. So it's like, oh, well, compared, because this is one of the things is like one of the cognitive biases, like we take the context around us to take the information in front of us and we compare it against other pieces of information. So even if it has nothing to do with anything, our brains start to kind of hook on to things and say like, oh, well, in comparison, this feels like a lot of comparison. This doesn't feel like as much. So, I mean, it's just an example. So things like cognitive biases Mm. kind of get in the way. And, you know, I tell this story quite a bit, but I think it's a good one. So back when I was in grad, I think it's a good story. I believe you. When I was in graduate school, we were doing Interestingly, just, you know, just like a student project on, we'll call them a a popular fast food brand that I eventually worked on way down the line, like for real. But in grad school, it was just kind of one of those things you go talk to customers and you create like a presentation and you get to know like why they might be doing what they're doing. But we got a group of moms together and basically talked to them about, we'll call it like an enjoyable meal for kids. (laughs) This enjoyable meal has toys, has fun, you know, little snacks and things, but a big fast food place might realize that, you know, like 20 years ago, this is not a very healthy choice. So they've gone through this journey of trying to, you know, make what's in this enjoyable meal a little bit more good for, you know, for kids, right? So put in some fruit, put in some milk, all that kind of stuff. And you talk to moms and say like, hey, you know, why have you, why did you last Thursday, you told us that you took your three-year-old in and you got them, you know, a meal from this place. Why did you do that? And they're sitting in a group of other moms and you could see them think, and then kind of look around and they would say like, oh, you know, I just I know they've done a lot to kind of improve the health of this enjoyment meal. And I just, you know, I think it was it was a good choice because we didn't have a lot around us. And I know that there's fruit and there's milk now and all this. And, you know, what's happening is the probably the kids saw like the toy on the window and went like, oh, my God, I want that 
Pokemon Mom, or whatever. Now, right now, right now, right now, yeah, right they're, now. <laughs> they're throwing a fit or doing, or maybe you just were like out of options. And it was just like an easy, expedient thing to do. And, you know, and this is like at the time having, you know, no connections or anything with the actual company, but I just started to look at it and think, well, it, I don't know if that's really true. I think you're saying one thing, but you're doing something else. And it's not necessarily that the, the point that I'm making is, the moms, you know, well, they're sort of afraid of what the other moms might say. They're afraid of getting judged in a group. And that's certainly true. But if you ask them, well, did you, is that really why you did that? Did you kind of like lie to us like about why you did that? They would say, no, no, that's exactly why I did it. Because, you know, we have these sort of mental tricks that our brains play to like make up this story. Like, oh, no, I mean, I'm not the kind of person that would feed my kid junk food. So it must have been because the food is healthier. I mean, there's like a lot of stuff that I'm throwing in here that so we could like unpack about how people think and the stories we tell ourselves and all of this kind of stuff. Things about like our our own identity. Like if you think of yourself mm-hmm. as someone who's in shape or if you think of yourself as someone who's like a, a conscientious parent, things like that. It, it just filters through the information between why you actually did it there up in your brain and what you say, <laughs> what you tell mm-hmm. people about why I use this product or why, you know, I did whatever I did. So that was really an eye-opener for me. And it's not to say that things like focus groups or talking to your customers isn't good, but I do think it's it's one of those things. Once you understand how behavioral science and psychology work, you start to say like, oh, okay, well, let's just see what they do. Let's experiment. You know, and I do think mm-hmm. that's that's maybe the last lesson about how you can sort of apply these principles is I always tell, I mean, anybody, I work with businesses really of all sizes in my consulting practice. And I always emphasize, I mean, and every single business has this issue. Like you have to experiment. You have to try more than one thing. And it's stinks. Like it's it's a pain in the butt to like go through and spend all this time and make two mm-hmm. versions or five versions and put it in front of people. But luckily, I mean, so many businesses are, have a digital presence or that, you know, they're online, they have a website, all that. They have social media. They can test things. And you'll see that happen on like my Instagram and things like I'll try stuff. It can feel risky. It's it's really tough, especially if it's a small business and like your face is on it. But you got to just remember, you have to experiment with things because it's never a straight line between, oh, they did the study and it said this thing. And that's absolutely going to work for my customer in this context, in this environment. Mm. I mean, in various countries and like people, people are just different, like everywhere. So you have to just try stuff and see what sticks. It might work. It might not work. But don't just throw things out and go like, Ta-da! You have to try. You have to try. Like, I'm done. Yeah. I worked on it. I'm finished. You didn't buy it. I suck. Well, or, you know, like, hey, you didn't buy it. So there must be something wrong with you. And I think mm-hmm. that's the trap that a lot of people can sort of fall into again, because, you know, yeah. you do the work and you put it together and you're like, well, that was a great campaign or that was a great piece of content. But, you know, if nobody downloaded it, actually, was it? I mean, take the same piece of content, reskin it, you know, reframe it like think about using different language or chopping it into smaller pieces i mean chunking is another good example but yeah i'll, I'll sit here all day and just throw out like principles if, if you let me but i think again like it's you know simplicity mm. it's choice it's experimentation i love love the definitely when you talk about content and that's a big thing that a lot of my clients come to they're like well i've been doing what you told me i've been putting this out nobody clicked nobody's buying right and it's like you were saying, there's, they get, people have so many things coming at them at any given time. Everybody is different processing information at different times. So there is no way to know one, if they even saw it, two, yeah. if they ever read it, three, if they understood it. Right. So mm-hmm. we don't, 
this is just a message to everybody. Do not give up on yourself after one try. Keep yes. on experimenting. Yes. That is a special message from us both. And I know you talk also about just like the experience that people are in, like their environment that they're in when they're making a decision has such a big impact on their that purchase or that action that they're taking. And it made me think of every time I go to an event and you know how there's always something being sold at an event. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't even, you may, you paid for the event. You didn't pay for the event. There's like t- a t-shirt or a poster. And I think of like when you go to a concert, you always want the t-shirt. You always want whatever that stuff is. I don't know if you a hundred percent love it by the time you like a week from now, but definitely when you're in the moment, there's this like wanting to take the experience with you. So I don't know. I don't actually have a question around it. I just thought it was super powerful that you had brought it up. <laughs> no, I think it's a really good point. I mean, and I think the, actually the example that you just use of a concert, I think is a really good one because it goes back to this idea that, you know, we sort of assume that people make logical decisions, right? That, oh, I've made the case and I've shown it to you. And obviously you will choose this thing I have put in front of you. And actually like emotion is the thing that's driving most people. If you're in the moment, you're at a concert and you're like, yes, I'm always going to want I don't know, BTS t-shirt, $50 on it, and I'm going to wear it every day or, you know, whatever. I mean, yeah, for me, it yeah. was like sync or Backstreet Boys, right? And I like never wore that shirt and paid an d- exorbitant amount of money because it's like, you're there, you're excited, you're with your friends, it's emotional. It's yeah. like, you're right, you want to capture a little bit of that experience and take it home with you, whether you actually wear the t-shirt ever again. <laughs> It's probably up for debate. But I think what you're making is a really good point. And it's, it is about our emotions, our memories are the things that give us our everything, I yeah. find, right? And that brings me to like something you've been talking about. I think, you, well, depending on which platform you're on following you, you were talking, I saw it on your Instagram today as well, but this very fascinating concept of the peak end mm-hmm. rule. Mm-hmm. We have to talk about this because it came up with a client yesterday and I didn't have words for it. She was just like, you know, I'm super overwhelmed about this thing and I don't know if I'm going to be able to deliver. And I said something and I had read this peak end rule. I had heard it on your podcast mm-hmm. yesterday, the day before. And I remember saying to her, they're only going to remember how you dealt with this in the end. Don't worry about all the beginning. And I didn't even know that I was using the peak end rule. So please tell everybody, what does the peak, what is the peak end rule? Because I think it's very important. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, in the easiest terms, basically the peak end rule says that people will remember an experience or form an opinion based on the memories of that experience based on only two points, which is the emotional peak. And that can be good or bad. So peak or trough, but peak. And then the end of the experience. So again, I'll go back to like the Ikea example is a good one. Or no, I take that back. I won't talk about Ikea. I'm going to talk about Disney. Because Disney actually did re- something really interesting when they built Disneyland. And this is back like in the 50s. So imagine Kodak. If no one is familiar with Kodak, Kodak used to make actual like print film. You take the picture, you take it to the place, you get it developed, you get your pictures yes. back and you go like, what a great time we had in. Hawaii or Disneyland or wherever it is, like weeks later, right? And Disney, you know, they didn't know about the peak end rule because honestly, I don't even think it was a thing when they were creating the park, but they knew, oh, well, in these moments where people are really excited and they have a great time, that's what we want them to remember. And the end, they were smart enough to know that the end of the experience actually isn't when you were leaving the park. The end of the experience is when you go get the film developed and you look at the pictures, that's the end of the experience, right? Mm-hmm. And there can be multiple ends within an experience, but I mean, that seemed to be the most important one. So they worked with Kodak to actually design the colors in the park. So they made it like a certain vibrant orange. 
so that it would appear better in the photos. So this is not something, I mean, this is like 3D chess, right? Like a 4D chess. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Disney going, stacking things on top of things. But this idea that you would actually design a physical experience so that it's better remembered and the importance of memory and emotion is so, to me, it's just mind blowing. But the, quickly, I mean, the other example with Ikea is, you know, you go through things, you have, you know, wherever the the peaks or troughs might be an argument with your significant other usually or like a meal kids running rampant can't find one one's under a bed totally all that yeah so we'll skip that part but again like thinking about the ending of the experience you go through the checkout and in general ikeas have the same structure right they have a big restaurant upstairs and they have a little cafe near the checkouts and if ikea is doing their job right you probably are looking at that receipt and going like, oh, gosh, I didn't mean to spend a thousand dollars. It's Ikea. long. It's yeah. as long as your arm. <laughs> exactly. It's so big. What did I do? <laughs> and you have this moment. They don't want that to be the last thing that you remember, at least from the store. Right. So they've got that nice little cafe there. And if you noticed, they sell sweets, they sell ice cream and donuts and it smells really nice. They're not selling like Swedish meatballs at the end. Right. It's just like nice little sweet treats. And so that's a way to sort of balance out the pain of this giant receipt. Now, if you think about the other ending in an Ikea experience, the may, what, maybe what we would call like the true ending, it is a very frustrating, terrible experience. And that oh is putting God. together. Put, putting Ikea putting together Ikea furniture. I swear it was one of the like one of the biggest fights me and my husband. Yeah. It's like one of the only like really big fights I've ever had with my fiance. It's like, <laughs> what are you doing? Oh, like, that's not it. What's instructions? Look at the instructions. The instructions suck. Give me the hit. Like, yeah. oh my gosh. Exactly. And they know that's a huge problem. So they actually acquired a company called TaskRabbit to actually come to your house and assemble your furniture for you. Now, it's not something they offer to everybody, but it is, again, a way to sort of mitigate the pain at the end of the experience. And the last thing I'll say about the peak end rule, I, I do like to tell this story because it's a good example of taking something that's like studied in a laboratory environment and then applying it to things like customer experience. And I, I do like to call the peak end rule sort of the golden rule of customer experience in behavioral science because it's an overarching thing. You can use it to help prioritize like where you're going to spend money on projects and what you want to fix first, all of that stuff. So it's a really great rule. But it came from a study about colonoscopies and pain in colonoscopies. So if you can imagine, mm. there's Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman, who wrote a book, Thinking Fast and Slow, and was sort of like one of the, the big minds at the beginning of creating behavioral science or behavioral economics. He did a study with his research team. They basically gave men getting a colonoscopy exam like a little button. And you would press the button depending on like how painful it was and all of that. And then they would talk to them after and say, how painful was it? And they looked at what was actually happening through the little buzzing, you know, on the graph. And then they compared it to what they actually remembered. And that's what they found. It wasn't the average of every moment of pain. It was how painful was it at the peak and how painful was it at the end? So even if it was a higher amount of pain on average, they didn't they didn't remember it as more painful as long as the peaks and the ends weren't like super painful. So again, Mm. this is like a weird example of colonoscopies and marketing, but (laughs) (laughs) just to write a book called Colonoscopies and Marketing one day. But I think it's a good example of like, okay, you can take something that's happening in the real world that's like a real sort of feature of the human brain and say like, all right, well, how does that work for Ikea? How does that work for Disney? How does that work for any handful of businesses? And how does that work for your business? Right. And Mm -hmm. where are the peaks and where are the ends? I mean, even just doing that work, I think is really important. I totally agree. And I love that example. And I remember watching your YouTube video about Ikea and, mm-hmm. and, and that idea that they're putting this cafe at the end. I'm like, you guys are so smart. Very and it sneaky. automatically, <laughs> yeah, very sneaky, sneaky. <laughs> but it made me think about 
my customer journey and the experience. And when people decide they finished a membership or finished a program, like what do I have in place that would have them feel great and not guilty about leaving or because people do feel guilty if they've been in something for a long time. They're like, you know what? I get a lot of messages like that. Like, I'm so sorry. I think I'm going to do that. Like, and I'm like, listen, it's totally fine. Like everything has its time. You know, we wish you all of the best of luck. Mm-hmm. But I also it did have me think there's more I could do to make them feel great about the time we did spend together. Right. So I'm so glad that we could talk about that and really like make that our peak end rule for the podcast. I was like, that is something I, uh, I was really, really fascinated with. Like I learned yeah, that. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> so Jen, it's been so amazing speaking with you. And I would love it if you told, I mean, we're going to link to all of the things that we've mentioned inside of the podcast, but is there a place where you want people to connect with you the most? Is there a place where you're the most active or are you just like totally available everywhere? Oh, gosh. I don't know if I'm totally available everywhere. The places where I've been focusing, because again, I'm I'm working on my own choice paradox and my own options and workload. I mean, probably the best place is choicehacking.com. So I have courses, I have mm. case studies, I have consulting. You can find out about all of that there. If you do want to follow me on social media, uh, you know, again, like I'm trying to give up Twitter, but I am on Twitter. LinkedIn mm-hmm. is a great resource and Instagram seems to be growing like crazy because people are just really responding to it there. So as a great, great community. Content. Yeah, a lot of people like commenting and having really good conversations. So that's great. If you want to find the podcast, it's just choice hacking. Just search it on any podcast platform. And then the YouTube channel is called Grow Like the Greatest. And that's pretty much all the places where I am. But you'll find me in one. You'll, you'll catch me on one of the channels. Okay, fantastic. And I, I really want to encourage everybody to go definitely, you know, listen to the podcast, get and They're just such because it's just such digestible content. That's what I find. They're like 15 minutes, 11 minutes, At the most, you know, yeah. Like real quick and easy and valuable content. So Jen, I want to thank you so much for all that you do. We appreciate you. Keep putting all of that juicy stuff out into the world. Keep putting that up on Instagram because it's all juicy, shareable posts that we can share with our other business friends. And I want to thank you so much for being here. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. If you enjoy this episode, then make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss the juice every single week. And if you thought this episode was super juicy, it would mean the world if you gave it a five-star rating and left a review over on iTunes so I could keep bringing the juice to more people who need it. And if you want to win some juicy swag, I want you to take a screenshot of this episode from wherever you're listening, then post it to your stories and tag me over on Instagram at Monique Brian underscore co. That's Brian with a Y and you will automatically be entered to win. Until next time, my lovelies, keep building that brand over a business and raising your juicy CEO status.